This is Dean Mathis, the Director of Capital Ministries Michigan. In these Bible studies at this particular time of the year, we are looking at the coming of the Messiah that we celebrate at Christmas in our country and in all of areas where Christianity has made any kind of an impact. And the story or the account of the birth of Jesus is known because of the wide dissemination of the Bible. I've entitled this particular study today, The Messiah's Address, or just simply Messiah's Address. Whenever you receive a piece of correspondence in the mail, there are a number of things that have to be placed on it or on the envelope in which it is sent in order for it to reach you. And so these things have to be there or it will not reach its intended recipient. For example, on a letter, there would be about six pieces of information. Number one would be the name of the person to whom the letter was being sent, or at best, the entity, such as a business or something. But so there has to be a name on it. There would be a street or a post office box address given. Then there would be the town or the place where that street would be located. It's like a rural route or something like that, or in a small town or even a major city. And then there would need to be the name of the state in which that city is found because, let's say, for instance, here in the United States, there are a number of towns with the same name in different states. So you have to be specific as to which state the town is in. And then, either by assumption or by actually spelling it out, you have to write on the correspondence, the nation. What, what nation is this state? this town and this street and this person located in. And then within my lifetime, another thing was added, a thing called a zip code, which is a numeric code which aids in the distribution of printed correspondence. Now, the same thing is sort of true with electronic mail that comes to us. Embedded in the information is the address, the electronic address of the intended data the address to which that intended data needs to be delivered amongst the billions of possibilities on the planet today. So the same sort of thing is true in the Bible when it begins to specify the identity of the Messiah because in the progressive revelation of Scripture, it becomes very, very clear that knowing who this person is is going to be critical because we're going to need to place our trust and faith in this individual for our eternal salvation. So it is no trivial matter that across the 1400-1500 years of the compiling of the divine revelation that God gave to people from the beginning about his plan of redemption, that it gets very specific as to who the Messiah will be and in whom we place our specific trust for salvation and eternal life. It's no trivial matter. It is extremely important. So last week we looked at the fact that the Messiah would have to be a human being with a unique distinction that it would trace its heritage from the mother and not from the father, which is from the get-go an implication of what we will later know as the virgin birth. But there's going to be something unique about this individual's heritage in that regard. In Genesis 3.15, we read that particular 
promise, that prophecy. God speaking here, and I will plant enmity between you. God was speaking to the serpent there as representative of the devil and the woman and between your seed, that is a future descendant of the devil and her seed, a future descendant of the woman, Eve. And he shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So we learn from this that the Messiah will be a human being with the distinction of tracing his ancestry through his mother and not his father. And that in the end, this individual, this seed of the woman, would crush and destroy the serpent's work in history. That the serpent would be defeated. That the devil would be defeated. But in the process of that, that the seed of the woman would be wounded. It wouldn't destroy him, but it would certainly cost him a great deal. There would be suffering involved. Now, across the centuries, that suffering and that cost is going to be amplified and finally fulfilled in the life of Jesus. As we move through the biblical narrative in the book of Genesis, then the trail becomes more and more specific. After the flood, one of the descendants of Noah, Shem, one of his descendants is picked out, a guy by the name of Abraham. And God begins to make promises to this, uh, originally his name was Abram, uh, to this individual that God was going to do use something unique with him and he was going to create a race of people through whom the Messiah would come. So now it begins to be more specific in that the Messiah not only will be a human being, but he will be a human being coming from a specific lineage, namely what we will later know as the Jewish people, which we specified in the book of Genesis as the descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. So that becomes the defining three patriarchs that define who the Jewish people are. In Genesis chapter 22, in one of his promises to Abraham, God says this, And in your seed all the nations of the earth shall be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Now here he uses the term seed in its singular application. Now we know this is true because Paul quotes this verse in the book of Romans as the application to the Messiah himself, as the application to Jesus. And so what he is saying here in this particular promise because of Abraham's obedience to God and his faith in God, that in one of his descendants all the nations of the earth would be blessed. So the Messiah, who would be a descendant of Abraham, would not only bless Abraham's descendants, but also every other human being would be blessed through this coming descendant of Abraham. The Gentiles would be blessed through this seed of Abraham. So again, the address, so to speak, is getting more specific so that we can identify who this would be. Later in the book of Genesis, after the patriarch Jacob is born, and in the course of his life, he has 12 sons. In Genesis chapter 49, we find Jacob down in Egypt. And uh, he is an old man, and he is getting ready to die. And before he dies, he wants to pass a prophetic blessing on to his sons, and thereby predict things that are going to happen to them under the inspiration of the Spirit of God, an outline of their earthly pilgrimage and part of their earthly destiny. And in the process of this, in Genesis chapter 49, verse 10, we read these words. The scepter, that is the the thing that the king holds, the scepter, 
will not depart from Jacob, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes to whom it belongs, and the obedience of the nations is his. I'm quoting that from the New International Version. A literal translation of that from the Hebrew text into English would read this way. The scepter, the sign of monarchy, the sign of a ruler, will not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until he comes whose right it is, and unto him shall the obedience of the peoples be. So, this particular prophecy further defines how we can determine who the Messiah will be. And it is this. One of Jacob's sons, who has the name of Judah, will be the patriarch or the head leader of a tribe that will bear his name. It will later become the name of the entire category of descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. It's where we get our name Jew. And so this particular prophecy states that the tribe of Judah will keep its identity up until the one comes who has full rights to rule and the one who has the full rights to the monarchy, not only of the Jewish people, but of the entire world. So Judah's identity will be intact until the Messiah comes and can be identified as a descendant of Judah. So, we can see from these pieces of evidence as we move down the road that the Messiah will be a human being descended from the seed of the woman who will also be a descendant of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And his descent will also be limited to one of Jacob's sons, Judah, and that the scepter and the staff, which indicate royalty and authority, will come while the tribe of Judah still has its identity. So now, these prophecies establish a clear time period for their fulfillment. Now, the Jewish people, from the get-go, as we look at what Moses put together in the first five books of the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, kept detailed information on the process of God's interactions with the human race from the beginning. And in it also, it chronicles God's covenant relations with them. And with that come detailed statements of family lines. And we find those things repeated in scripture with different tribes. So Israel was delivered from slavery in Egypt because after Jacob died and after Joseph died, there came a period in which there was a regime change in Egypt and the Hebrew people, which had been given a lot of freedom, were suddenly subjugated and become slaves. And then God liberates them under Moses. They receive their laws and their order of worship and their identity and at the time of their exodus at Mount Sinai. And they are disciplined because they don't always obey God and they wander 40 years in the wilderness. But finally they cross the Jordan River into the land of promise and begin to claim the territory that God had promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and to subsequent descendants of those three patriarchs. And they divide up their tribal allocations, but they keep their family names and they keep their property titles so that they can, every 50 years, they can go back to their property and re-inherit it if it had been lost in foreclosure or something of that nature. Eventually, the discipline of God falls upon the children of Israel because they have not obeyed him. The kingdom goes through a split. The northern kingdom falls, and then the southern kingdom falls in 586 B.C., and then after a period of exile, they are 
allowed to return under the auspices of the ruling Gentile government at the time under the Medo-Persian Empire, and they began to replant and reestablish themselves. During that period of time, while the Jews were in exile, the Levitical scribal class began to collect all of the tribal records and to keep them together. And when they were allowed to return to the land of Israel and rebuild the temple, they stored each of the tribal genealogy records of the various family members in a special place in the temple area. And if someone wanted to find out their lineage, who their ancestors were, they could go to the temple and there those records were kept by the scribes under the supervision of the tribe of Levi. Now, that would be the case at the time of the birth of Jesus. That is why in the New Testament, you are able to have the genealogies of Jesus that are given in Matthew and in Luke. Biblical scholars tell us that the one in Matthew is the genealogy of Joseph. And it shows us several things, indicating the fact that Joseph is not the human father of Jesus, that Jesus' father happens to be God himself. But there are clues in the genealogy, the way Matthew wrote it in Matthew, that let us know that he's trying to communicate that to the Jewish people in the way he crafted the genealogy. But that's where he would go to get his information. And um, he would have access to those records at that particular time. A second genealogy given in the New Testament was done by Luke. Now, Luke was a Jewish Christian who lived in the diaspora. That is, he was not born in the Holy Land. He lived in what today would be called Turkey. And he was a convert to faith in Jesus as the Messiah under the preaching of Paul and joined Paul and traveled with him on his missionary journeys. And while Paul was imprisoned in Caesarea, Luke goes about the task of compiling what we now have in our New Testament as the books of Luke and Acts. And he specifically states in the beginning of that that he made careful research. Well, he has a genealogy in there in which he gives us the genealogy of Mary because the descent that's described in there is a little different from the one in Matthew. And in Mary's genealogy, he tells us why her family's lineage from the house of David would be the one that God would use to indicate that Jesus was the Messiah because there are no disqualifiers in that genealogy that are red flags. And so we have, in the case of Matthew and Mary, an illustration of how those genealogies could be found and could be used. And God communicates to us through those genealogies biblical truth about the identity of the Messiah. So we know that Messiah will be a king and that the Messiah had to come while his ancestral descent could be traced, that he was a legitimate descendant of Judah. He was also a descendant of David. And he, we find out that he is a descendant of David through the boy Nathan, which he is not disqualified as one of David's sons, Jeconiah, was. So all of that would be for a subsequent study. But in 70 AD, something happened which altered all of that history. And in 70 AD, the temple was destroyed and all those records were burned. In the heat of battle, a torch was thrown into the temple and the, the temple exploded into flames. And as the gold melted and ran out into the streets and mingled with the blood of the dead, as it spread across that plaza area where the temple compound was, the Roman soldiers, because they had not been paid for their years of siege, began to literally tear the place apart. Jesus prophesied 
that there would not be one stone left on standing on another, and that's exactly what happened. The only thing the Romans left at the end was what we call today the Western Wall, which was a large retaining wall to show that Rome was mighty and powerful and to show exactly how the destruction was brought about, that they destroyed one of the most secure and solid edifices ever built by man, and they did it to prove that they were the true conquerors of the world. So the Messiah had to come before 70 AD. Now there's an interesting footnote to history in that there was never a Jew who claimed to be the Messiah until Jesus came along. Jesus is the first one in recorded Jewish history that laid claim to being the Messiah. And of course, he was the Messiah. He is the Messiah. After the death of Jesus then, and particularly after the destruction of the temple, others began to lay claim to the Messiah. But none of these can be the Messiah because the evidence to be able to prove that the Messiah is a descendant of Judah is no longer available. For example, the very first revolt, the very first person to claim to be a Messiah was a guy by the name of Bar Kokhba, who led a revolt in 132 that ended in 136 AD by a decisive conquest, again by the Romans and by the final total expulsion of the Jewish people from the land of Palestine. And they stayed gone until 1948, so it was a pretty thorough destruction of a revolt. So here we now have more specificity about who the Messiah is. And he will be a descendant of Judah, and he will be eventually the king of the world. As we come to this Christmas season, understand that God keeps his promises in every regard. He loves you, and every promise he makes to you, if you place your faith in Christ, will be fulfilled. May God richly bless you.